Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. The tree. Sandy and I were discussing what a rather somewhat simple title this is. However, when we tried to reason through what could be a stronger title for this, because Sandy's always the one putting together my keynotes, and so she helps me with uh, titling advice every now and then. And... There was all sorts of options for this, but it ended up being, I know it sounds boring, but it does fit. It just doesn't quite enunciate the grandeur of this message. Because the tree? You see, in a simple sense, Paul had a message. And when he, when you bake down Paul into the most basic, most rudimentary message that he had, it would have been Jesus and him crucified. And one way we could say it this morning is, Jesus and the tree. However, the tree doesn't quite enunciate all that happened on the tree. And that's why we term crucified instead of the tree. Because crucifixion shows an action. There was something that took place. It wasn't just some tree standing there and that accomplished something. It was that which happened upon the tree. It's that which the tree represented. It's that which occurred upon a tree. And so as we go through this, you're going to recognize that the concept of a tree is dense and rich within scripture. And one of the the tools of interpretation that we use in studying the Bible is how the concepts and the ideas are wielded throughout all 66 books. You could have a statement in one of the 66 books, but if your conclusions about that statement are not resonant and harmonizing with the rest of the other 65 books, your conclusions are faulty. And so when we're studying the tree, well, let's understand what God has delineated the tree to be throughout Scripture. And it's extremely fascinating, but not just fascinating, life-altering. There is something about a tree. You know, there's, there's going to be aspects to this message that I don't even bring up, too, as far as studying the tree in Scripture. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they came across, uh, across brackish waters in a, in a place they called Mara because of the bitter waters. Moses was told to take a tree and throw it into the waters, and it made the waters sweet and drinkable. There's another scene where uh, Elijah is, there, uh, I'm sorry, Elisha is helping build some type of prophet's house. And one of the guys that's helping him is chopping wood, and the axe head goes flying off and lands in the Jordan River. And the man says, alas, my master, my axe head, it was borrowed. And it seems like such an insignificant scene in all of world history that God would focus in on and say, watch, people of God, watch what I did here. Like it's a borrowed axe head that landed in a river, not just any river, God says, the Jordan River. He says, watch what I do. And they threw, Elisha threw in a stick, a tree into the river, and it caused the axe head to float. Now, I'm not even going to go into those, but I'm telling you that it is, the scripture is replete with a depth and a dimension of understanding regarding the concept of a tree and salvation. 
a tree and rescue. A tree is very significant. Okay, there's all sorts of legal ramifications of that which is associated with trees. Now, what would legalities and trees have to do with each other? Most of us don't associate the two. Well, in the Bible, they do. And so let's begin this journey. The tale of two trees. The place of decision, the place of justice. Trees, let's go back and let's mention two trees very quickly as an overview. We have a tree in the garden which is very significant, which causes the entire erosion and the entire breakdown of all humanity. The entire earth is swallowed up under the sentence of judgment. Sin is what it's known as. And it all happened at a tree. It was a place of decision, and it was a place of justice. Now let's fast forward 2,000 years. Well, that was a funny way of saying it. You're going to have to fast forward a few more thousand years than that. Uh, So it's 2,000 years ago, but technically it would have been a fast forward in about 4,000 years. So sorry to confuse you there. You had to know your calendar since Adam uh, to do that properly. Uh, so let's go back 2,000 years. So if we go back to Adam and Eve, now we fast forward 4,000. I know, I'm just making this complicated. We have another tree. It's a tree on a mount called Golgotha. It's the tree upon which Jesus, our Messiah, dies. Fruit is once again hanging upon a tree. And that tree is a place of decision. And it's a place of justice. It's extraordinary to see the parallel between these two trees. There are two trees. And now let's explore these two trees. The tree in the garden. Now for those of you that are astute and know your garden history, you'll know that there were actually two trees in the garden, not just one. However, the one that we are going to start with is the one that is typically understood as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God makes certain things very clear about this tree, which is in the midst of the garden. But we're going to liken something to it. We're going to link something to this tree. And I'm going to call it the law of sin and death. Now, God makes something very clear. Well, what is it? You eat of this tree, and you die. Okay, this is a simple principle of our souls. You sin, and you die. It's called the law of sin and death. You disobey, and all hell breaks loose. You die. It's just. God gives a command, legally binding command. He is the lawgiver of the universe. And his great law that he gave in the Garden of Eden was do not eat of this tree. For if you do, the day in which you do, you will certainly die. The law is given. It is clear. I didn't hear God stutter when he said it. He said something crystal clear. He gave his law. And... They broke it. They partook of the tree, and as a result, they died. And as it says in Scripture, just as in one man's sin, all sinned. Adam sins, and we are born in Adam. And so as a result, there seems to be this consequence, this justice that has been carried throughout history. And we all have entered into the same law, the law of sin and death. 
And when we sin, which we inevitably do, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then there's a consequence, and that consequence is just. And that consequence is we sin, we die. So we can call it the law of sin and death. Now listen in Genesis 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. It's pretty clear. I'm reading it, and I I think I can understand that. You eat of the fruit of that tree. There's all sorts of other trees. But if you eat of the fruit of that tree, the day in which you do it, you will die. So here's a basic breakdown. If you eat, you die. If you believe the lie, you fall from grace. See, what's taking place at this tree? Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with this tree, it's, I guess, must have been rather a luscious-looking tree, at least the fruit on it. And it looked good for eating. And so there was a serpent, who we know as Satan, And he baited Eve in the garden, and he questioned the word of God. One of the most classic things that the enemy does, if not the number one attribute of his work, is to undermine the word of God. Look at the Christian world we live in today. One of the number one questions is, are you sure that God really said that? Or are you sure God really meant that? What do you think Satan's doing in the very beginning? The exact same tactic Are we sure that this is really God's word? Are we sure? I mean, it makes it sound like if you disobey this, then you're going to die. But how do you know that? God is probably not wanting you to eat this because if you do, you could be as he is. He doesn't want competition as a God. He doesn't want you to know that you could be as he is. Well, guess what? This is the same thing he says to us all the time. You know what sin is in its most basic rudimentary description? Here's a throne in our life. This is the inside of our body right here. And here's a throne. And us itching for that throne and and Satan, Lucifer, the serpent, Beelzebub, the father of lies, whatever you want to call him. He whispers to us and says, God doesn't want you to know that you can rule your own life. See, God doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to enjoy this existence. He just wants you to be subservient to do whatever he asks of you. But take the controls of your life. If you believe the lie, it's a bait. It's a temptation to take what does not belong to you and to sit in that throne which is not yours to sit in. You have defied and rebelled against the Most High God. You sin, you die. So... If you believe the lie, you fall from grace. There was something known as grace. And grace didn't just emerge and come into existence at the time of the cross. God is a God of all grace. He's always been a God of all grace. He, never just, he didn't just become a God of all grace when Jesus died on the cross. He's like, oh, now I can be a God of all grace. He has always been a God of all grace, but we have been cut off from receiving that grace. We have been unable to tap into it. We have been separated from it, as you will soon see, because it happened right here in the garden. And so God has always been a God of all grace, but if you believe the lie, you fall from grace. You will actually be removed from the the saving nature of your God, the saving ability of your God. 
Now, here's another one. If you disobey, you come under the just punishment of the law. God is just. And so, therefore, he handles everything in accordance with his nature. And in his nature, he is a God of justice. So, therefore, if you violate his law, he cannot violate his nature in his response to you. He must be just. And he has already said in the law, the law shares two key things. The law shares that which is righteous and right to do. It says, this is how you ought to live. It's perfectly righteous. It's the behavior of God. If you study the law, you will see the behavior of God. This is how God behaves. But it also shows just consequence to violating it. So what does God do? He says, this is right behavior. You do not touch this tree. Do not touch it. That is right behavior. And if you do, it also shows you the just consequence for touching it. So... If you disobey, you come under the just punishment of the law. It's just. If you don't heed God's word, you will be cut off from intimacy with God. This is precisely what happened in the Garden of Eden. This is serious stuff. And we have all felt the consequence of this in our own life. Now the second tree, the tree at Golgotha. Look at what I associated and linked this with. The law of believe and live. Now, we've been focused for the past few minutes on the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. However, there's another law, and it actually is a higher law. It is very interesting. It's like the law of gravity compared to the law of aerodynamics. The law of gravity, you may desire to fly, but if you are under the law of gravity, you can flap your arms all you want, but the gravity will hold you down. Same with the law of sin and death. You can desire to please God. You can desire to be pure. You can desire to obey. You can desire to live righteously for God. But you can't. Something is wrong with you. There's an impediment of soul. You are under a law. And it weighs you down. And all it does is prove your weakness. Your inability. But there is a higher law. That when you enter into it, it's like entering into a plane. And when you enter into that plane... Suddenly, the law of gravity, though it still exists, is being trumped by a higher law. A higher law. But you believe and you live. So, the law of believe and live, the tree at Golgotha. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has eternal life. Now, I don't know if you see the contrast. If you disobey, you die. However, if you believe in me, you live. We have two laws at work, and they're both associated with a tree. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I know that seems like a strange thing to just throw in here. However, what took place back in the Garden of Eden? If you eat, you die. And what does Jesus say? Unless you eat, you won't have life. What? It seems rather contrary, doesn't it? Different tree. You see, we ate of the wrong tree. We ate of the forbidden tree. But there was another tree. There is another tree that we are to partake of. And when we eat of that tree, we live. The law of believe and live. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, that's a fact if it's true for you. In other words, have you eaten of the right tree? Or have you only partaken of the wrong tree? Have you believed the lies that have been said about God? Have you doubted his credibility? Have you usurped and taken a control position of your life? If so, you've eaten of the wrong tree. However, there is a way of correcting that which has gone wrong. And that is why the second tree is of such great significance in our life. Because without that second tree, all we have is the law of sin and death. And every single one of us, before the bar of justice, is found guilty and we will be condemned. But our God, because he so loved us, gave his only begotten son. I mean, the story is amazing. It truly is. So let's explore it. Here's the second tree. If you eat, you live. If you believe the truth, you enter grace. Remember the other one? If you believe the lie, then you fall from grace. Well, guess what? How do you access grace again? You believe the truth. If you simply look at the truth of God's word and say, I believe it. By believing Jesus Christ, you actually enter into grace. It's actually that simple. If you obey, you come under the work of righteousness. If you do heed God's word, then you will be brought into right relationship and intimacy with God. So we have juice from the wrong tree dripping down our chin. What should we do when we are presented with the right tree, with the other tree? I say we throw down, cast off anything associated with that disobedience and that disregard and that rebellion. And we turn from it. We throw off this old behavior and we turn unto the tree at Golgotha. We turn unto Jesus Christ and we believe and we live. The garden. The place of two trees. So it's interesting because I just talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we fast forwarded 4,000 years from that point to the tree at Golgotha. And what's interesting is in the Garden of Eden, we actually had two trees. But we forget about the other tree. Because the other tree didn't really seem to be a player in the whole scene. But it's mentioned. It's actually there. It was there from the beginning. The provision was made. There is something that is available all throughout history, but we were cut off from it. Listen to this. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. There it is. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. There's all sorts of trees. And one of them in the midst of the garden, alongside of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is called the tree of life. You may eat freely of any tree. You know what that includes? The tree of life. 
They had access to eat of the tree of life. And yet the serpent, he's more subtle than all the other beasts. And he had an agenda. And guess what? He has an agenda in our generation as well. You see, two trees are opened up to us once again due to the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does, not know, God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. That's awkward. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. It's interesting because God's talking in the plural. (laughs) You have a triune God. Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You could almost say, and live forever in this condition as a dead man. Unless he is to reach forth and grab a hold of that tree of life now. God shows mercy. It doesn't seem like mercy. I recognize that. But this is God showing mercy. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way. Listen to this last line. To keep the way of the tree of life. There is a way of the tree of life. Who is that way? Isn't that fascinating? To keep that way. This way was preserved. The way has always been there. The way to the tree of life has always been there. But we were cut off from it. Justly cut off. Legally separated. We are now under the law of sin and death. And the law of believe and live still exists. But we are removed from that which gives us access to the abundance of life in Christ Jesus. The right to the tree. So, we just finish it. Well, I'll read this for you. You'll understand. There's a legal access to these things. There is a just separation that was made. And we were removed from the garden. We were removed from that place of intimacy with Most High God. So the right to the tree. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. You know, that's just as much of a legally binding statement as the fact when he says, And if you eat of this tree that you're not supposed to touch, you will die. God has said, and Adam and Eve could have legally stood before the throne of judgment and said, You gave me legal access to eat of the tree of life. However, they relinquished their legal right to that position to eat freely from any tree of the garden when they violated his command. And they were removed. Ironically, as an act of mercy on God's part. 
for he would give them access to that tree of life in the future. But that is, of course, the gospel. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, let he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, all the way in Revelation... He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know what paradise even means? It's like a lush garden. Isn't that fascinating? It's like a return unto a garden, which is where the tree of life still is. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You see, outside of the second tree, we have no legal position to have right to partake of the tree of life. We can't partake of the tree of life. We have no access under the tree of life. But a way has been made to the tree of life, to the abundant life that God has always had for us, but we were cut off from it. The law of the tree. There's a law of a tree. It's really strange. There's so many legalities that have to do with the tree, and there's literally a law that goes with trees. If any man has committed a sin worthy of death, and this is in the law of God in Deuteronomy, and he be, and he be, and he be to be put to death, that is a funny sentence, and thou hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged, basically you could say he that is hanged on a tree, is accursed of God. That thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance. So there's a law given to the Hebrews on how they should handle if a man needs to be killed and needs to be hung to be killed on a tree, which by the way is... One of the most grotesque ways to destroy a man in the Hebrew nation, as you will see. It is literally a statement of a curse. But if he is hung on the tree, there is a legally binding law in the Hebrew culture. Just as much of a law when God says, do not eat of this tree in the midst of the garden. What does he say? If in your ranges you must see someone put to death upon a tree, then, listen to this. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree. This is a law. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. I don't know if you guys are moving forward in the future to the second tree. But you need to realize that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Everything. The law of the tree was fulfilled in him. And he supplied the right to the tree. Everything about the cross is about this tree in a strange way. For he that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. That thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance. Now that is such an obscure statement in Scripture. And most of us would say, all right, what does that have to do with me? Why do I need to know about the fact that, okay, if someone is killed, they hung on a tree, they need to be taken down before that day and buried. Who cares? Well, this is part of righteousness. God is denoting something. And as we will explore this, you'll, you'll understand it even more. 
Joshua 8, and the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until eventide. So now the nation of Israel is actually doing that which was said in Deuteronomy. So Joshua is heeding the commands of the law here. And the king of Ai, which is the second great empire that the Israelis went against in the land of promise. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city and raise thereon a great heap of stones that remains unto this day. So, when the sun begins to go down, what do they do? They take the king of Ai off the tree and bury him in a cave. Huh. Well, that seems strangely familiar. Uh Uh-huh. Let's keep going. What you begin to see is there's a template made for how the wrath of God is satiated and satisfied on a tree and how those kings are dealt with. They are buried. Okay, let's just keep going. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. What? No. God wasn't made a curse for us. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? There's no way that Jesus was become a curse. Jesus, pure, spotless, sinless. Jesus, without guile in his mouth. There is no way that he was a curse. Was he? Well, what does it say in Scripture? For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. It's the law of the tree. The Hebrew nation knew it. They understood the law of the tree. If a man hangs on a tree, then he is accursed. The tree in the wilderness. Numbers 21. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and 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 much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. This is one of the strangest stories. We're in this pure Hebrew republic where God is separating darkness from light. And he has introduced the righteousness of the law. Now, men within that system and under that law have sinned. And because of that, they're dying. Moses then prays, And what is God's solution? I don't know if this catches you funny, but it has caught me funny for years. It makes total sense in the overarching scheme of the Bible, but it is a really odd story. Make thee a fiery serpent. What? Why would you want to make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, a tree? And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. Do you remember our second law? We have the law of sin and death. And what's the second one? The law of believe and live. 
So what we have is they have violated the first law, the law of sin and death. So they're under that right now. And God has a solution. But his solution doesn't really fit our grid. Make a fiery serpent and stick it upon a pole. Now, if I'm going to give a solution for what would cause a sickness to go away, I would not stick a symbol of darkness and a curse upon a pole and say, yeah, look upon that. Why would I want to meditate upon that? How horrifying. And yet, this is what God says. So, what's the conclusion? Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man... When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, in obedience to the word of God, they look upon that which was accursed. The serpent was cursed. They look upon that which took and bore the curse. And in doing so, in believing that that will be their salvation, they live. Once again, they come to a tree. Now they do the opposite of what they did before, and now they believe and live. The accursed of God. Death while hung upon a pole or tree to the Hebrew was a death that carried with it the highest degree of disrepute, indignity, and reproach that can attach to a man. The foulest stench of degradation. There's nothing worse than being fixed to a pole or a tree and hanging. To a Hebrew, that is the most despicable of all despicable things. For it denoted both the carrying of the just penalty for sin and the unmitigated exposure to scandal, shame, and infamy. Unmitigated. There is no barrier. You're sitting there naked. Well, hanging there naked. You have no protection. It is just, and it is just for what you have done. But then there is no barrier to protect you from the shame and the foul stench of it. It is the most horrifying thing any Hebrew could ever imagine happening to them. Those that beheld the hanging man recognized his pitiful and disgraceful state. For he was lifted into a strata of unsurpassed contempt between heaven and earth. Thusly declaring that he was, had been abandoned of both and was heretofore unworthy of either. The reason it is the law of the tree exists is the law of the tree lifts a man between the earth and the heavens. And it basically makes a statement the earth has rejected him justly, heaven has rejected him justly. He is unworthy to inhabit either. He's cursed. When you begin to swallow this and you begin to recognize what Jesus Christ made himself willing to bear, it carries a whole new level of significance. But God made it clear to his people that when such a man hangs upon a polar tree, he mustn't hang there through the night, but ought to be taken down at sunset and then subsequently buried in the ground. This was a symbol that the justice was settled. It's finished. The law satisfied. The guilt now removed and no more was demanded. That's what it symbolized. You remove them. Justice is settled. Law satiated and atoned for. Guilt removed. Now you remove that filthy thing from the sight of all. 
and you bury it and cover it over, that it would no longer be a stench in this land and that degradation and that infamy would not spread like a disease. We've dealt with it justly, now we bury it from sight so it will be seen no more. Then he and those that are his ceased to be a curse. The curse is now satiated. The curse is no more. It is dealt with and it is buried. And now that his body was buried, the land of Israel was purified and cleansed of crimes, of his crimes. So if they do not do justly, do you know what happens? If they do not do justly towards this criminal, do you know that his crimes now fall upon the head of the nation? Which is why justice must be served. We deal justly, and as a result, the justice is satisfied, the crime is dealt with, the guilt is no more, the man is dead. That's how you satisfy it. Death is required. But when that death has been died, the guilt is dealt with. The crime is satisfied. Justice has been served. It is finished. The cursed Nehushtim. Now, depends on how much of a scholar you are and how much you've studied these things, but in Hezekiah's reign, he gave a name to this fiery serpent, and it was the Nehushtim. Okay, so that means that cursed thing. It had actually become a problem in Israel because it had become a token or an idol. And instead of it being symbolic of the work of the cross, it became a replacement for faith in the Messiah. And if we just had the fiery serpent, the brass serpent, we'd be fine. And so Hezekiah in his reign uh, wasn't too happy about the cursed Nehushtan, that cursed thing. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Okay, let's dig a little deeper into this now. This is strange. I recognize that. But at a certain point in Israel... There was a pole or a tree established and there was this fiery white hot brass serpent that was hung upon a pole. Now, here's where it gets awkward for all of us if we're in Israel and we have sinned. You've been snake bit. That's the whole concept. You were bit. You actually have the venom in your veins, and you are feeling the repercussions of that sin. The wages of it is death. People all around you are dying. This has humbled you. This has awakened you. That's why you called unto Moses and said, please, on our behalf, cry out to God that he would intercede. You're snake bit. You're dying. Do you recognize it? You see, any Jew that recognized this had hope. The fact that you even recognize that you're snake bit is the first sign that God is ready to heal you. If you recognize that you need to be healed, praise God. Now there's something else you need to do. This is the hard part. You have to go out of your way in Israel to the location of that brass serpent 
and you must look upon it. You know what that does? You know what that says? Everyone around you knows that you're snake bit. You have to acknowledge openly, I am snake bit. I participated in the rebellion. I did. And you must go out of your way and stand before this cursed thing. And you must look upon it. But when you do that in obedience to the word and the command of God, you live. You believe, you live. And that higher law now is able to be operative in your life. Our Jesus became the Nehushtan, the cursed thing. John 3, and it says, and as, and as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so as Moses lifted up the Nehushtan in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know what that's right before? John 3, 16. We are literally linking the centerpiece of the gospel with this brass serpent in the wilderness. But what is the law that is operative? It's the law of the tree. If any man is hung upon a tree, he is accursed. But if you look upon that one, if you eat of that which is upon that tree, you live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You believe, you live. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. If you believe not, if you listen to the father of lies, you are under the law of sin and death and you are condemned. So if you believe not, you are condemned already. That's your state coming into this discussion. But if you believe, you live. Because he hath not believed. He is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. How many Israelites died because they were unwilling to acknowledge that they'd rebelled against God? How many of them died in their snake-bit state because they were unwilling to acknowledge that they too had the disease? that they too had rebelled, that they too had come under the just consequence of their sin. Let us not be one of those. Let us be those that run unto the cursed thing and stare up at the cross and say, I need what you accomplished. We believe and we live. Christ hath redeemed us, purchased us from the curse of the law. We deserve to be the cursed thing. There's a tree, and we should be the ones hanging on it. We have violated, and we are rejected of this earth. And the law that was handed down in this earth, we have violated it. 
as simple as one lie, as simple as one disagreeable moment and disrespect, show of disrespect towards our parents is enough to cause us to be rejected by the law that was given. And we are rejected in heaven for we cannot bear the perfect righteousness of God. We are unfit for both and rejected of both. That tree belongs to us. That position on that cross is our position. And yet, for us, he took our position. He said, no, I will hang there for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The tree in the promised land. So you notice we keep going through the story of Israel's history and we end up with more trees. The tree in the promised land. Now I have a sub-theme for this one. The tree is for more than forgiveness. See, what do we have in the wilderness? We have a tree that was basically for forgiveness. You believe you live, and this is where most of us stop. We stop short in the wilderness when there is a land flowing with milk and honey that is meant to be explored. Joshua, Yeshua, it's the same name for Jesus. The man of salvation leads us onward. The law reproves us, and the law of sin and death defies our forward march. But when we turn unto the cursed, when we turn unto Jesus and we believe, we are actually healed and made whole. But for what? We need to progress. We need to move forward. It's more than just forgiveness that Christ came to accomplish. The next of the five kings. So this is in the book of Joshua. Joshua is conquering 31 hostile empires in the land of promise, which is very similar to our souls. There is a battle within our souls. Anxiety, fear, lust, greed, pride. There's these strongholds, these empires. And most of us have satiated ourselves saying, well, I looked upon the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And as a result, 31 hostile empires still own and operate the territory of what is known as the promised land. We have exceeding great and precious promises. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That promised land, the answer to, from God is yes and amen. Go take it. It belongs to the saints of God. It's what was purchased on that cross. So let's not stop short of pursuing it. So here we are in Joshua, an incredible picture of Jesus. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. 
Okay, so we have a visual demonstration here. In the Hebrew culture, the foot is a symbol of authority and dominion. And so what happens is Joshua, remember a picture of Jesus, lays down the kings of the land of promise and stretches out their necks and asks the captains to come over. This is us. Jesus calls us. He's the one that defeated them. Stretches out their necks and says, put your foot right here. See, all things are under his feet, but he's demonstrating to the captains that all things are under their feet as well. These kings are subservient to all Israel. What does this have to do with the tree? And afterwards, Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. You bury it and you see it no more. Justice has been served. The wrath has been satiated. Judgment, the shame and the guilt of this land has been cleared. It is finished. Now Joshua rules. Now Joshua rules. The tree, the tomb, and the titanic stone. I had to get a T word, you know, to keep the alliteration going. So I had to create titanic stone. It doesn't flow as well as I would like. but. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until eventide. And then he was taken down in a great heap of stones. A tree, a tomb, and a big huge stone. Isn't that fascinating? This is the law of the tree. The law of satiated justice. And it just so happens that at the time, the fullness of time when Jesus comes to this earth, that the Romans are practicing something called crucifixion. And it just so happens that a borrowed grave, a cave, is given to put Jesus' body in it. Accident? I think not. The fulfillment of all righteousness. It is finished. It is accomplished. But not just the life given so that you might have eternal life in heaven. But that you might have life, eternal life now. That you may have victory and strength and triumph in all the 31 empires that are hanging out in your soul and in the soul of the church would come under the foot of the church and under the foot of the saints of God. If any man has committed a sin worthy of death and he be to be put to death and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. And that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. The sting. You guys know what a sting is? I'm not just talking about a... A sting operation. It's, It's a trick. It's a con. You see, you are baiting someone to expose themselves, and then you catch them in the act. A sting is a form of manipulation. It's trickery. The sting is the moment when a con artist finishes the play and takes the mark's money. 
If a con game is successful, the mark does not realize he has been taken or cheated, at least not until the con men are long gone. Well, can you think of a con man in Scripture? Yeah, I can too. His name's the serpent. The serpent, in the Hebrew, it's nachash. The con artist, this is what it means. The cheat, the cursed, the condemned. He's up to no good. He's a con. He specializes in the con. He specializes in stinging us, in biting us, in getting that venom into our lives that destroys us and sticks us under the law of sin and death. He's good at it. And he knows that the wages of sin are death. He knows it. He knows the law. And he knows that if he can bait us to violate it, he wins. Because he knows that God is just. And he knows God must abide by his justice. So, we have the serpent. Now, here's where the twist comes in. Conning the con and crushing his head. You see, Satan, it's sort of hard to describe how he works. But he's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. Now, you could ask yourself the question, does he know when he's lying and when he's telling the truth? Can he even tell the truth? Does he get caught in his own lies? You see, I would say it's probably accurate to say the deceiver has deceived himself. It's very possible that he actually believes that he is all that and that he will win in the end. I don't know. I mean, what what motivates this guy? But it's very possible that the deceiver has deceived himself. So what we have here is God leveraging how darkness works against darkness itself. You see, the con man is licking his chops. For Jesus, in obedience to the Father, has made himself vulnerable. You know that Jesus could not be touched until the night of the Garden of Gethsemane? Could not be touched. And it says Jesus was not taken. Jesus gave himself. See, Jesus, on a mission from the Father, says, Thy will be done. It is for this very cause that I came. And he submits himself. But what does the bloodlust of the enemy do? You see, Satan didn't know what trap he was stepping into. But with all his bloodthirst and his bloodlust, he went after that king of glory. And that king of glory did nothing to defend himself. And so the onslaught of all the weight and all the momentum of hell piled on. Conning the con and crushing his head. Where do I get this from? So listen to this. This is in Esther. It's an incredible statement in Esther. Haman is the con man. And he is working over King Asuherus. And he is seeking to destroy the Jews through his entire machinations and lies and deceits. But in the midst of it, he builds his arch enemy as a man named Mordecai. And he wants Mordecai dead. And so he has this elaborate scheme to pull that about. And he, so he builds gallows on which to hang Mordecai. Listen to this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. It's one of the most incredible foreshadows of the cross you'll ever get in the Old Testament right there. The very cross that was built to crucify Jesus actually was the death to all the powers of hell. It's the most brilliant military maneuver ever. 
because all of the bloodlust moved Satan right into position. And as the wrath of God was falling, this is the way I look at it, pinned with, you know, no possibility to do anything. He looks helpless. Somehow God reaches out, grabs all the powers of sin and death, pulls them in, and the wrath of God pours down judgment on it all. He crushes the head of the serpent, removes its authority. It no longer has any legal hold on us. Welcome to the cross of Jesus Christ. What a... There's that. What appears to be weakness is anything but. Which none of the princes of this world knew. Listen to this line. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, we, we didn't know. <laughs> Jesus conned the con man. The cross is the ultimate sting operation. And he caught the enemy in a way that should cause every saint throughout all eternity to laugh a belly laugh. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it. He condemned sin. It wasn't just an innocent man dying. He died a just death upon a tree. And he accomplished all righteousness, fulfilled it all. And in the process dealt with all the powers of earth and hell. And he set us free and made a way for us to access the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the higher law. The way to the tree of life was opened up legally. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus wasn't weak upon that cross. He appeared so to natural man. But in the heavenly realms, he made a public show, an open mockery of them. Saul slayed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Jesus is tens of billions. He dealt the fatal blow. And he says, it is finished. Jesus hasn't merely become accursed for us. He has become our triumph. It's not just that he became accursed for us. That's just the beginning of his legal work. But he then triumphed over the grave. Reckoning their defeat... The word reckoning is a word that Paul uses in Romans 6. It's a very key word in our vocabulary as Christians. Because in the concept of belief, when we talk about believing Jesus Christ, a lot of us think that that means passing a true-false test. Did Jesus Christ die on the cross? True or false? We're like, true. However, imagine that you're in Israel and you're snake bit. And someone says, do you think it's true that if you go and see that bronze serpent that you will be healed if you look upon it? True. However, what if you don't go and look upon it? You're not healed. 
You see, reckoning is the process of actually agreeing with truth and taking it to your account. It's an accounting term. So therefore, let's imagine that you had a checkbook in front of you and you had zero money in your account the last time you checked, which could have been 10 minutes ago. You have no access to a computer terminal. And I say to you, I know your need because you need to write a $1,000 check right now. You need the resources, you need the funds, but you know in and of yourself you do not have it. And what if I intervene and I say, but I've made provision for you. I just wired, just a few minutes ago, I just wired $1,000 into your account. Now, what do you do with that checkbook? Well, it depends on if you believe me or not. You see, if you believe my word, which means you have confidence in my nature and my character that I cannot lie, and that I'm not defying or, or attempting to dissuade you in the wrong direction, but that I have your best in mind. Do you believe my word? Do you put your confidence and faith in my word? If so, you confidently write a check. You could say, well, I need to see it for myself. I need to put my finger in the nail wounds. And Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen. Reckoning is believing though you have not yet seen. It is literally standing up when you hear about the brass serpent. It says, if any of you are stung, if any of you are snake bit, go, look upon it, you will be healed. And you say, if that's what my God said, he cannot lie. He's bound legally to do it. And so you go and you find that brass serpent. In the process, you are acknowledging that you are guilty, that you have sinned, that you have violated the law of God, that you are a rebel, and you are in need of a rescuer. I need my Savior. And if my Savior says to look upon this, by golly, I'm looking upon this. And in the process of your belief, which is more than just mentally knowing that something exists and agreeing that, yeah, it possibly could have benefit, you openly repent of that which you have previously done. You acknowledge that you have sided against your God. You turn from your wickedness and you go unto his work of righteousness. Legally, by looking upon this in obedience to the command of God, you are cleared. You are made whole. You believe, you live. For many of us, Christianity is something that we know about and we agree with it. But we have never risen up and gone to look at that tree. We've never gone and stared at it and said, that is my salvation. We've never gotten uncomfortable. We don't like that part of this whole thing. We don't like this repentance word. We don't want to have to turn away from our old life to get a new one. I want a new life and all the benefits of my old life. You can't have it that way. You forsake this life, this tree, and this fruit to find the right fruit in obedience to God. You believe and you live, and in the process... You must throw out that which you once partook of. You turn from this tree wholly and fully to focus on this one. Reckoning their defeat. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. You know that you have an old life? Some of you are still possibly lugging it around. It's a rather self-centered life. It is all about you. It is all about how you feel, what you want in your life, and if something doesn't agree with it, you get upset. You're proud, you're hard-hearted, you're hard-headed. It's called the old man in Scripture. It's the life with you, funk, on the throne. And that's the life that all of us have inherited, and that's uh, the life that all of us have lived. But God has set us free from that. However, how do you get free from that? Do you get free from it by hanging on a tree? Sort of. Have you ever tried hanging yourself on a tree? 
It's not hard. One of the things I love how Nathan Johnson says it. Crucifixion is the one sort of death you can't do to yourself. You can maybe get one arm up there and maybe get your feet. But then you still got this one arm you can't kill. You see, your old man doesn't go. You can't kill it. But Jesus has dealt with it. How did he deal with it? You know, on that cross, he dealt with your old man. That old nature. How does that work? You see, he invites you into himself. Which means all of his work, all of his great accomplishment is available to you in Christ. So when he went to that cross, cross, guess who's with him? You are. You're in him. And so when you are at the cross with him, your old man is sentenced. It's dealt with, legally separated. It's called circumcision of the flesh. It's the circumcision of the heart, that which is of the flesh. The old man is removed from you. And then what? He's buried. What happens to you? You're buried too. His burial is your burial, which means your old man is no longer visible. Your old life is now cut off. It's not available for public viewing. That old behavior is seen no more. It's called Christianity. And then what? Jesus rises from the dead, and his resurrection is your resurrection. You see, we reckon these things because... Legally, that cross has accomplished it. And the way we partake of it is by getting out of our comfort zone and acknowledging that we need it. Turning away from our old life as we've known it, leaving it all behind, and looking upon that tree. Eating that fruit and saying, this is the fruit that gives me life. I want as much as is on this tree. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Hmm. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? You know what the word baptism means? It means to be immersed in something. Well, what are we immersed in? Jesus. He's our clothing, our righteousness. We have no access unto the Father except through him clothing us. We can't come the way we are. Hey, God, what do you think? We'd be struck down dead. We have no access, legal access, under the throne room of grace because it demands perfect righteousness. So who has perfect righteousness? Do you know anyone? I know someone. His name's Jesus. And so we use him literally as clothing. He invites us in. And he clothes us. He surrounds us with a shield. And we actually have legal access. God says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Come boldly in Christ. Don't come on your own merits doesn't work. You come in Christ Jesus. And so we are baptized into Jesus Christ. And if we're baptized into Jesus Christ, you know what it says? We are baptized into his death, the legal work of his death, the redemptive work of his death, the atoning work of his death, the justifying work of his death, the forgiving work of his death. It's all available. So when you look upon that tree, that death is made available to you. And your guilt is dealt with. Your condemnation is carried by that accursed thing. That is what you deserved. And when you look upon it, you recognize all that was rightfully due you has been rightfully dealt with by the true just one known as Jesus Christ. I am crucified with Christ. 
Such a strange statement because Paul was still living after Jesus Christ had died, resurrected, and ascended to be with the Father. But he says, I was crucified with Christ. And every single one of us can say the same. I'm in Christ Jesus. Therefore, his death was my death. When he died, my old man was dealt with. And so therefore, my old man is dead. I don't need to kill it. Jesus dealt with it. So therefore, I reckon that today. I write the check. I stand up and I say, this is what saves me. You have done it, Lord Jesus. And I take that. I believe it. I reckon it as fact. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckoning his triumph. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So, I'm in Christ, therefore his death is my death. His burial is my burial. I was immersed into it. I was baptized into it. But if I was baptized into his death, I'm also baptized into his life and his resurrection. I have life. It's called eternal life, by the way. But it's not just in heaven. It's now. Eternal life. It's always been there. We have access to a tree. It has been made available to us to eat freely of it. It's the tree of life. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. What a strange line. I'm dead, but I live. Yet not I. It's not the life I used to live. Remember that one, that old man where I sat on the throne and I dictated everyone around me and I had a bad mood all the time? Yeah, it's not that one. You see, I'm crucified with Christ and yet I live, but, the, but it's not me that's living. It's not old Eric. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The five kings are dead and buried. Now, let me ask you a question. The five kings, I don't remember where they were all from. We had Lachish, we had Jerusalem, we had Hebron. Uh, I can't remember all, the, all five of the, the, the spots. Those kings, are they dead or alive? You sound awfully confident about that. How about your old man? Is he dead or alive? Okay, but some of you are thinking, well, I don't know. I just met him this morning. Just had a good conversation with him. (laughs) Is the cross past tense or present tense? It's past tense as far as an historic event. Its efficacy is available today in the present. However, it's past tense. So when we say Jesus died, we don't say that Jesus is going to die. We don't say Jesus may die today. He died. It's accomplished. It's done. It's finished. Legally, it's done. Buried. That very night, 2,000 years ago, it's accomplished. Your victory in salvation is past tense. But just as if I had laid a $20 bill up here on the, the front stage, and I said it belongs to you. You know that that $20 bill could have been sitting here for 2,000 years. But you might just hear about it today. However, it It's always been there for you. It has your name on it. It has been reserved for you. 
What should you do? Should you go, oh, how nice, and then leave? And imagine someone comes up to you and goes, didn't Eric give you a $20 bill today? You go, oh, yes, true. But where is it? Where is it? Well, it's still up on the stage. You see, Jesus Christ has accomplished something 2,000 years ago. But you must go to the cross to get it. You must behold the cross. You must look upon it to access and to take possession of that which Jesus Christ has accomplished. You must reckon it. Don't just know it exists. Don't just know the cross is out there. Don't just know there's a $20 bill up here. Reckon it. Take it. It's for you. The five kings are dead and buried. And they cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. You see, those kings never got out. They were dead and they were buried. And your old man is still behind a big, huge stone. It's no longer meant to be seen. You know, when you're in a plane, the law of gravity is being defied by a higher law known as the law of aerodynamics. However, let's imagine that you're flying and there's a knock on the window that says, you've really got this figured out now. I think you could fly just as well as this plane. You don't need this plane anymore. Okay, now why we would listen to such a voice is, you know, beyond me. But it's funny how we do. We're like, yeah, I could do this. And we pat ourselves on the back. It's like, you know what, I've really put my life back together. Things are going well. And so what do we do? We open the hatch on the, on the plane. And whew, we're sucked out immediately into the law of gravity. See, the law of gravity didn't disappear. It's just you are abiding in a higher law. And as a result, as long as you remain and abide in Christ Jesus, you have grace and you are under grace. But if you return as a dog to vomit unto your old behavior, then it is up to you to accomplish perfect righteousness. Guess what? you begin to fall immediately back to earth. Now, my metaphor breaks down at that point when I say, repent and get back into the plane. <laughs> however, however that would work for us, that's precisely what we must do. If you find yourself itching for a little gravity time, a little time of flailing and falling all the way to the earth, to your doom, repent. Turn from that and get into Christ Jesus afresh. This is an amazing statement in Psalm 110. What a gospel statement. The Lord at thy right hand. Who sits at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. This is a statement about Jesus. The Lord at thy right hand. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Remember the five kings? What did Joshua slay? Five kings in the day of God's wrath. He struck through them. Well, how did Jesus pull this off? In the day of God's wrath, kings were struck through. Those five kings died at that crucifixion scene. We see Jesus dying, but what we don't see is what he bore and what he carried. He made a public spectacle of those five kings. He hung in our place, but he brought with him all the powers of death and hell and sin and the devil. And they were judged. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. You know that those five kings lie dead and buried. And just for an exercise, Jesus may want to stretch out their necks and say, no, no, put your foot on the neck. Do you see it? 
Uh-huh. They're obedient. They cannot defy my authority. Legally, they submit to me. And you, you little lambs, I'm going to give you authority over all wolf packs. They no longer will bully you around. You have been given the authority of the shepherd to hold in contempt and derision any power and authority that would defy my authority. You exert my authority in this earth, and when the devil comes against you, all you must do is resist him. It's all you must do, and he'll flee. It's a guarantee. It's part of my law. You see, the devil is under the legal authority of Jesus Christ as well. And if you agree with that legal authority, and you believe your God, did you know that you have power over the devil? What if you believe the lie of the devil? And what if you believe that you have nothing and you're weak in Christ Jesus and there's no hope in this earth to ever come against sin? Well, guess what? Then you will not have the power to walk in the strength of Jesus Christ. You're once again returning to an age-old tree. And when you return to that age-old tree, there is breakdown in the soul. Forget this tree. I want you to give your life to focus on the tree at Calvary. The tree of Jesus Christ. The tale of two trees. The place of decision and the place of justice. In both trees, you have a decision that's being made. And you have justice that is being served. Sin and death. Look on the left. If you eat, you die. Look on the right. It says believe and live. If you eat, you live. I know that sounds strange. That Jesus became food for us. But he did. You know what town he was born in? Bethlehem. It means house of bread, but the word house actually means body to the Hebrew. And in this house, Beth, actually oftentimes means house of God or body of God. And bread oftentimes is translated as food. It's not just bread. That's just the placeholders, like Kleenex for facial tissue. And so what we have is house of bread actually means to the Hebrew, body of God become food. Jesus was born in a town called Body of God Become Food. And he was laid in a manger, which most of us are like, oh yeah, I don't know exactly what that is, but that's interesting. A manger is a feeding trough. Jesus was born in a town called the Body of God Become Food. The Body of Christ Become Food. And he was laid in a feeding trough. Jesus is our food. He says, eat and live. If you believe the lie, you fall from grace. But if you believe the truth, you enter into grace. If you disobey, you come under the just punishment of the law. But if you obey, you come under the work of righteousness. His work. You obey and he clothes you in perfect righteousness. If you don't heed God's word then you'll be cut off from intimacy with God. But if you do heed God's word, then you'll be brought into right relationship and intimacy with God. Believe and live. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. You obey, you believe, you live. That they might have right to the tree of life. He says, I've made it available for you via my cross. The way of the tree of life has been made. We were cut off from it because of our sin. Now 
we have been brought near by it, by his grace, by his working, by his power, by his cross. We have now been given access. Not because we deserve it, by the way. There's a reason why this is called good news. This is not something we can do. This is not something we did. This is something he did. And only he can accomplish in us. I want us to keep our eyes focused on that great tree. The tree of life that has been made available to us. And I want us to go out of our way to partake of everything that has been born upon that tree that is available to us. In Christ Jesus, we have access. And I want us to eat. Open your mouth wide that he may fill it. Our Jesus is our meal. You see, Jesus isn't just an external clothing, but he must enter and be our life. And that's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Open your mouth wide that he would fill it. Eat and live. Heed his word, and you will find life and life abundant. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.